Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. True or false, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. Well, let's have it out. This is a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We are at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University, where we have two teams of debaters, two against two. They include a governor, an investor in green energy, a thinker on green energy, and a writer on the topic. They will be trying to change your minds, because this is a debate. It is a contest, a contest of ideas and, and logic and well-presented argument. In this case, you, our live audience, are our judges. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote twice, once before the debate and once again at the end of the debate. And the team that has changed the most minds will be declared our winners. Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. On to round one. Opening statements by each debater in turn. And debating first for the motion, I'd like to introduce Bill Ritter, former governor of Colorado, whose state has the fourth highest concentration of clean energy workers in the country. He's now director of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. And Bill, I think with a resume like that, America wants to know what kind of car does a former governor of Colorado drive? That's a... That's a great question. Uh, I did just because I'm commuting by a 1999 Saab that gets a little over 30 miles to the gallon. So you're, you're putting your money I was where driven for four is. years in a row, so I had to do something other than find It's nice driver. to be driven. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Ritter. You know, Americans are not a group of people that sit out a revolution. Uh, we began with, an, um, with a revolution, the American Revolutionary War. Think about the Industrial Revolution, where we established really our ability to be an economic powerhouse. Or more recently, the Information Revolution, where we reaffirmed in the minds of the world our ability as innovators and creators and inventors. Well, there is this revolution that's upon us now. It is the clean energy revolution. And the question we have is, will we lead or will we follow? Energy itself, just if you think about the revenues generated globally, is the largest industry in terms of revenue generation. So if we get it right, it absolutely can be a significant part of our economic recovery. And it's important for us to define the terms to some extent. When people hear clean energy, a lot of places in the world, they think it's just wind or just solar. When we think about clean energy, we do think about natural gas and, and believe that natural gas and nuclear and even clean coal can perhaps play a role in building out a clean energy economy in America and that it has to be every part of that from stem to stern in terms of our thinking about it. So I think one of the reasons I'm here tonight, one of the reasons I was fortunate to be invited is because as the Colorado governor, I said, in Colorado, we're going to build a new energy economy. 
In over a four-year period, we signed 50, I signed 57 different bills into law, bills that we believe made a tremendous difference as it related to our energy portfolio going forward, but particularly relevant to tonight's topic, made a significant difference in our ability to see economic development attached to clean energy. Uh, one of those bills was a renewable energy standard bill in the first 100 days that took us to a 20% standard by 2020 with a rate cap in place for consumers. We had significant economic development tied to that. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. Vestas Wind Turbines, a Danish company, building wind turbines in Colorado, uh, made the announcement just after I made the, signed the bill. They, in fact, then have four factories since that they've announced. At the end of the day, it's going to be 2,600 employees, a billion-dollar investment. We have homegrown companies, companies, again, where the technology was developed in a laboratory in Colorado. We've seen all sorts of growth in Colorado in this sector, even during a recession. And it's not just Colorado. If you look at the last 10 years, you look at Michigan, for example, where they've had terrible job loss in many of their conventional sectors, they've seen job increases, a 5.7% increase in jobs in Michigan over the last decade. Colorado had an 18% increase, and as John said, we're the fourth, if you look at, at where we stand. Uh, we are fourth in, in terms of how we have clean tech workers as a state. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill Ritter. Our motion at this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. Now to speak against that motion, Stephen Hayward, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute for Public Policy. When Al Gore was given the Nobel Peace Prize, you, you wrote that it was a further degradation of a, a further debasement of a once prestigious award for, for Parson Al. Are you saying our former vice president's a little preachy? <laughs> I think it's fairly self-evident, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Hayward. Thank you, John. Our case against the motion tonight comes in two main parts. First, that it represents a brazen case of bait and switch. And second, that it rests on a basic but surprisingly widespread economic fallacy that paying more for energy will somehow make us richer. We've been told for the better part of the last two decades that we need to make a rapid transition to clean energy away from fossil fuels in order to stave off climate catastrophe. And all of the official assessments of the matter from the national and international bodies that have studied the matter, such as the UN's IPCC, concluded that the cost of doing so would be substantial. The pessimists said it would hurt a lot. The optimists said the cost would be only modest. But the point is, all of the assessments concluded that the sign before the economic cost would be negative. But with the collapse of meaningful climate legislation here and abroad uh, and the arrival of the Great Recession, suddenly the argument for clean energy has been shifted into the form of tonight's motion. Clean energy will make us richer. It is the path to prosperity itself. It's the new domain of free lunch economics. I call it free lumens. Now, the basic problem with so-called clean energy is that nearly every form of it is more expensive than the fossil fuel energy it seeks to displace. The second bait and switch concerns what we mean by clean energy, because the working definition of clean energy seems to shift to make the term almost meaningless. Typically, clean energy has meant purely renewable sources, such as wind, solar, tidal energy, and geothermal. But now suddenly we're told that natural gas is a clean energy source that should be used to displace coal. But there's something very odd if we're now counting a fossil fuel as a clean energy source. Do carbon dioxide emissions no longer matter in the definition of clean energy? Consider that climate uh, policy orthodoxy says we need to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions to 1 billion tons by the year 2050. Today, right now, carbon dioxide emissions from current use of natural gas, 1.2 billion tons. Uh, now, the idea that clean energy will be the sector that leads us out of the recession is equally risible. There are a number of studies on this. Uh, I'll give you one quotation from a study from the Stanford University's very highly regarded energy modeling forum that concluded, quote, the advantages of increased jobs from renewable energy are vastly overstated at, at cost prevailing today. Now, I'll conclude with an observation on the essential absurdity of this motion. If this motion were true, we would not need to debate it at all. Did we have to debate whether railroads and automobiles and the telegraph and the telephone would transform transportation and communication? Did we 100 years ago have to debate the motion that new oil, coal, and gas supplies will power the next generation of American industry? Of course not. Uh, clean energy, however defined, does not resemble any of the past histories of recession-busting forces. 
And the odd thing is, is most recession-busting forces, like the housing sector in previous uh, recessions, are because there's pent-up demand. There actually isn't a pent-up demand for new energy at the moment. Energy consumption in America has fallen sharply as a, a, a result of the recession. Our energy consumption is down by the largest percentage amount since the end of World War II. So building new energy supplies right now makes about as much sense as building new tracks of suburban housing. The motion, in my mind, fails badly. Thank you, Stephen Hayward. So here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening statements in this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. Cassia Janosek is founding principal of Tana Energy uh, Capital and co-founder of the U.S. Partnership for Renewable Energy Finance. We also want to thank her. We were originally uh, going to have Dan Riker. He is literally snowed in. Cassia came extremely highly recommended and was also an enormously good sport to step in on several hours' notice. So we want to thank you, first of all, for that. And um, Cassia, um, when, I, when I did my quick research on you, I went to YouTube and I found an, a video of you standing in a business suit holding a live frog. Well, first of all, I love frogs. Um, <laughs> Um, but it was a, a function I went to in the U.K. for the Princess Rainforest Project. It, it was, was a promotion. It was a promotion. And I'm assuming that no frogs were harmed in the filming of that promotion. <laughs> no, it was a, a video effect. Ladies and gentlemen, Cassia Janicek. I've been an investor in the energy sector for the past decade, and I used to invest in dirty energy. My background includes investing at Bechtel Enterprises, the private equity of, uh, uh, arm of Bechtel, which is a large engineering firm. Um, I also worked at BP. So I started out my career investing in coal and gas. You know, as an investor, I look for the biggest growth markets. So that's why I'm a clean energy investor right now. And here's why clean energy can drive economic growth. First of all, innovation in new industries drive job creation and investment. You know, we can see this in the IT markets. We now lead the world in research product and deployment. Right now, I believe that about 16% of our total exports um, are related to advanced technologies. Well, guess what? That wasn't part of, our, a part of our economy 30 to 40 years ago. We need to develop the energy economy the way we did with IT, and we're starting to do that. Clean tech really is where information technology was 30 years ago and where biotech was 20 years ago. And secondly, the auto industry. Dinosaur industry, you know, we got our pants beat off by, by Japan. But guess what? Detroit is turning around. We're starting to see Ford, Chevrolet start developing electric vehicles. There's a lot of activity out there, and it's, it's winning accolades. So it really debunks this view that we can't afford to have this job creation in the United States. In the past 10 years, clean jobs grew actually 9.1% in the United States, while total jobs grew by only 3.7%. And then finally, I'll point out that costs are coming down, account down the curve. Electric batteries cost about $1,000 a kilowatt hour two years ago. Today, it's about half that, and we're on track for some, some very competitive uh, technologies that we're going to see in our, in our electric vehicles within the next 10 years. Point two, it's important that we grow a domestic market, not only for us, but for our export markets. It's an opportunity worth trillions of dollars and millions of jobs. 90% of the growth in energy consumption over the next two decades is going to come from developing countries. So we better get on that so we can actually benefit from the growth that we're going to see in these, uh, in these ex uh, export markets. And then third, we do need to talk about the, our dependence on oil. Oil does not help economic recovery. It actually hinders it. You know, we're seeing $100 oil. We've, we've seen this happen before, and, and price spikes really do not help the economy. Rising energy prices act as a, as a drag on GDP growth. A 10% oil shock, you know, could actually lower GDP growth by 0.2% per year for the next two years, and that's a recent statistic that Goldman Sachs has put out. I'm, I'm going to close with, the, with the, bringing you back to the, to the focus of this debate, which is that clean energy can drive uh, the future of our economy. And frankly, if you're not for the clean energy economy, then you're actually not for economic recovery. Thank you. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Welcome back to the program. 
Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. And here to speak against the motion, Robert Bryce. He is the author of Power Hungry, the Myths of Green Energy and the Real Fuels of the Future. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and former managing editor of the Energy Tribune. And and you write, Robert, in one of your books about uh, your experience with solar panels, which you've installed on your house in Austin. And uh, you conclude that, after all, you're just not sure they're worth it. What happened there? I have to get up there and clean them, for one. Um, (laughs) Second, the economics. If Well, the reason I did it, I got a subsidy, nice big fat subsidy. Uh, The city of Austin paid two-thirds of the cost, um, so I got a $23,000 system for about $8,000, but the payback is 20 years. Life of the panel is about 20 years, so I don't know whether it's a good investment or not. We'll see. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Robert Bryce. So please, by a show of hands, who here is in favor of dirty energy? Uh, One. Okay, two, maybe. Okay, thank you. It's what I expected. Well, the fact is that clean energy sounds tremendously appealing. And debunking clean energy is a dirty job, but Steve and I are here to do that, just that. Reality is that clean energy is not a specific thing. It is a marketing slogan. To the specifics, Governor Ritter mentioned natural gas. I am as pro-natural gas as anyone. I'm also uh, ardently pro-nuclear, end-to-end, natural gas to nuclear. I believe these are the paths to the future for a number of reasons. Um, But he also included in his statement that coal, natural gas, nuclear, wind, and solar are clean. The reality is if all of our energy sources are clean, then none of them are. Second point, green jobs do not exist or are so expensive as to be crippling to the economy. If you believe the corn ethanol scammers... They just put out a report last month that said they support 70,000 jobs. Well, if you believe the Congressional Budget Office numbers, the total taxpayer cost of the corn ethanol scam is over $16 billion. That works out to $230,000 per job. What about the wind industry? We hear this continually from the American Wind Energy Association. Oh, we're creating all kinds of manufacturing jobs, blah, 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 blah. Texas Comptroller Public Accounts uh, student uh, Susan Combs just came out with a report in December estimated that every wind job in Texas, Texas leads the country in new uh, in wind generation capacity, each job associated with the wind industry costs $1.6 million to the taxpayers. Third point, clean energy cannot possibly drive America's economic recovery because it is simply too small in scale. Every day, coal provides about 10 million barrels of oil equivalent to the U.S. economy. Natural gas provides about 12 million barrels of oil equivalent every day to the U.S. economy. We also use roughly 17 million barrels of oil. So roughly 39 million barrels of oil equivalent from those three hydrocarbons. Okay, so what about the political darlings of the moment, the clean energy sources that we've been discussing here? Geothermal, wind, biomass, and solar. In 2010, according to the EIA, they provided 166 million megawatt hours of electricity to the U.S. That works out to 277,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day. So how does that compare? Then if we just look at the two dirty, nasty sources of energy, oil and coal, they provide 100 times as much energy to the U.S. economy as the clean energy darlings of the moment. We could double, triple, quadruple, quintuple the amount of energy that we're getting from the clean energy sources that we're discussing here. It will be so small as to make no difference to the U.S. economy, and it certainly will not drive America's economic recovery. Final point, clean energy cannot fuel America's economic recovery because it is simply too expensive. Latest data from the Energy Information Administration um, estimate that over the next five years or so, gas-fired electricity will cost about $63 per megawatt hour. Onshore wind will cost about 50% more than that. And solar thermal generated electricity five times as much as that. The reality is that oil price spikes hurt the U.S. economy. There's no question about that. But uh, with the coming uh, electricity rate hikes that will come from these renewable portfolio standards in the electricity markets will be even worse for the economic recovery. You must vote against the motion. Thank you, Robert Price. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now on to round two, where the debaters address each other directly and answer questions from you in the audience and from me, John Donvan. We're here at the uh, Skirball Center at New York University in New York. We have two teams of two on the stage. Bill Ritter and Cassia Janicek are arguing for the motion, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. They are arguing that clean energy is a growth field. It is a revolution. You don't sit out revolutions. Their opponents, Robert Bryce and Stephen Hayward, are arguing as a resolution, it's very tiny, more of a fantasy. 
I want to go to to the side arguing against the motion, against the clean energy. Your, your opponents have made the case that the clean energy field represents a field of innovation, that innovation leads to jobs, innovation leads to exports. They cite the computer industry in our lifetimes as an example of this. Okay, so there's a certain logic to that that I think you can see. Take it on, Robert Bryce. I'm glad to. This is an easy one. Um, what is the most admired company in America today? Well, it might be Google. I would argue it's Apple. What does Apple do? It designs its products in the United States and manufactures them in China. Are we supposed to be opposed to that? Are we supposed to say, oh, no, Apple, you have, to, uh, you have to manufacture those products here in the U.S., even though it would be much more expensive, and then you need to export them? This makes no sense whatsoever. Further, an, uh, another just quick point. Uh, we heard that $243 billion is invested globally in clean energy. I, no doubt that that's the, uh, maybe the correct number. I can tell you that it, here in the United States, the upstream oil and gas industry spends that much alone drilling new oil and gas wells every year. You don't think that they're innovating? Of course they're innovating. And what have we seen? Incredible success in the shale gas revolution that is driving right. down the cost so of, let me go of, to your of fuel through the U.S. economy. The team arguing for clean energy uh, is a driver of the economy. You've heard he's basically saying that, um, yeah, there's innovation, but there's not much bang for the buck. Can you take that on? Cassia Yanisak. Sure. Well, I think that, you know, first of all, we're going to have to define what clean energy is. Clean energy is not just wind and solar, which I agree makes up a very small portion, less than 8% of our global, of, of our U.S. power generation. We have to include cleaner sources, cleaner ways to develop and and produce energy that's being produced from coal and natural gas and nuclear. So when we talk about clean energy and the opportunity for economic growth, we're, we're not just limiting ourselves to renewables here. One thing we haven't even started talking about tonight is actually energy efficiency and the opportunities there. As an investor, I care about growth and where the, where the best opportunities for investment are. But I would say that when we're talking about how do you grow the clean economy, it's about growing opportunities, broadly speaking. And there are new innovations we haven't even thought about. I mean, think about the electric vehicle market. We didn't think about building that market 10 years ago. Stephen Hayward, electric vehicles. Uh, well, um, they've got an awful long way to go yet. Their performance metrics are not very good. Uh, that doesn't mean they can't improve. No, but you're going to need to make some huge breakthroughs in battery technology and, and other things to make them work. We're sort of going step by step, and I'm something of an optimist on that. But look, let's suppose we made a magic wand and we, elect, uh, we invent the perfect electric vehicle tomorrow that can be sold at a competitive price to a gasoline engine. We have, what, 100 million cars in this country? 200, Most, 200 million. 200, those people normally keep their cars 10 to 15 years. People aren't going to rush out and buy 200 million cars in the next two years if we do that. So that means we need oil for quite a while to come. Right? Uh, I just want to, I have to say one other thing, though, to respond to uh, Cassia directly. If this debate were scored by the very strict rules of the Oxford Union, Cassia would be ruled out of order for not speaking to the motion. Energy efficiency is about the consumption of energy and how much of it we consume. Clean energy refers to the supply of energy. We're talking about two different things here. This is like saying we have a motion saying you should eat more vegetables because it's good for your nutrition, and then arguing, but actually you should just eat less food overall. Let's bring in Bill Ritter. Well, I think that's... I, I disagree that Cassia should be thrown out of this debate. I, I just <laughs> I think that that would be, be very lonely. Ruled out of order. That'd be out of order. an awful thing for my team. But here's the deal. Uh, why, why are we talking about clean? I mean, because it's say in the new title energy, of the right? resolution. No, no, we say new energy. The, the energy sources aren't new. The energy sources are all, have all been there. But the transfer has been to talking about clean because we care about emissions. And think about an industry that's focused on people using less energy and actually by using less energy, bringing down the cost of energy, that would be the cleanest form of energy because you're not, you're not emitting at all. But, that's not, but still, Robert Price. you haven't answered uh, Steve's fundamental point, which is the motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. I'm all for efficiency. Who isn't? Every engineer in the world is for efficiency. We are getting dramatically more efficient. Today in America, we use about the same amount of oil as we did in 1973, even though we drive twice as many miles and have twice as many cars. Clean energy, the motion is about the production of energy. But let me move on to one other point. That is, clean energy, the fundamental question here, clean energy adds nothing to the economy. It is only a substitution for existing electricity. I like electricity. Uh, if, but if this, wind, if this electricity is coming from a wind turbine or a solar panel and it costs twice as much 
as the electricity I might get from a coal-fired or natural gas-fired power plant, where is the benefit to me? Let's let Cassie. I'll, I'll gladly pay for a nicer let, tire, nicer Cassie shoes. On a second, it's not better electricity. Question. If clean energy is more expensive than conventional energy, then how does that help the economy? Well, actually, I, I think you're wrong on that point. You know, the IEA, for example, has done a study of the amount of subsidies that go for the, the fossil fuel generation uh, globally. I believe that number last year was $312 billion. Uh, for renewables, it was about $37 billion. So you're, we're not really comparing apples to apples here. But secondly, you know, I want to clear up this point about what clean- Wait, I, I, I'm not satisfied with your answer to his point. It wasn't detailed enough for me. The, the notion that, and I, I think most of us have that sense that, that energy provided through alternative, what we would call renewable alternative means costs mm-hmm. more now, now and, and will for the long future, and that that doesn't sound like a way to, to lift off. Let Bill Ritter, I, I think just you're out. So I'll tell you in Colorado, coal uh, without any price on carbon is six cents a kilowatt hour. Wind is about nine. Coal can get to six and a half. Wind is at nine. And when I became governor, solar was like uh, 40% more than it is now in four year. In a four-year period, solar came down 40%. Still not competitive with, with wind if you just say apples to apples. But, you know, this is the kind of argument that you hear from you guys. And, and, and I'm thinking here about the flat-screen TV. It was $15,000 a TV four years ago, and now it's $350. So we give up on flat-screen TVs because they cost way too much. You've got wind without a price on carbon, very close to coal. You've got solar coming down 40%, and it is our okay. – it's incumbent upon us so you're, to be innovators. And inventors. Your argument is through innovation, the prices are going to get lower, and I want to take that back to Rob. Well, Price. let me just address the subsidy question. The effective subsidy for wind now is two cents per kilowatt hour. The market price, the market price for natural gas today is under four dollars. You're talking about now, but your opponents are talking about a future in which the price will get lower through innovation. That's the point well, of the okay, flat fa- screen fair TV. Well, enough. And, and I want a flat screen TV. We have flat screen TVs in our house. I don't want a wind turbine next to my house. <laughs> but that, the, the demand but, for, but again, the Robert, demand, that's not the point. The point okay, is the price, enough. the price of the energy. Oh, come on! But it's not a good the noise. Line. And, and we're also energy. talking about the, the history of energy innovation and, and technology development. And if you look back through the history of how these costs came down the cost curve, because it was not always that easy and that, ex- and that cheap to drill for oil and natural gas. Governments had to be involved. These, these industries had to be helped along with industry. Well, but how long do we need to help them? In the Carter administration, we heard that solar energy was going to be the dominant form of energy by the year 2000. What happened? The problem here is not about subsidies. It's not, it's not even about want to or, or belief in global warming. It's basic physics and math. It's all about power density. How much power can you harness from a given area or, or, or volume or mass? And that's where solar and wind just fall down. So I want to take that back to Bill Ritter because you have experience in this area. Well, again, so here, we've, we've developed wind farms. Uh, we developed them from start to finish in the state of Colorado. Uh, we've got a fellow that's got uh, 112 turbines on his land. He's making about $5,000 per turbine, so it's a half a million dollars that he's earning in income. And he's got 68 acres out of production. 68 acres, he's still able to farm. This is, he's a wheat farmer, still able to farm all of that. And, and, and time after time after time, not only have we seen the ability to put up a wind farm, but we've seen the economic development possibilities for rural Colorado in an industry that, quite frankly, sort of lives at the margin. Think about the Mojave Desert right now, where they're building out solar, they're, and they're doing concentrated solar power with natural gas. And this is why I, I don't accept that we have this either-or. It's this false choice. Stephen Hayward. Uh, well, th- this raises an interesting point about um, how there is no form of energy that doesn't have some kind of environmental trade-off, except maybe for that bicycle generator the professor made for Gilligan. At last count, there are 70 wind projects around the country that are facing environmental lawsuits to stop them for various uh, impacts. Um, You know, we get upset when uh, birds die from a spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, fine. Uh, Windmills kill about 10,000 birds a year, and they also kill a lot of bats. Now, you know, bats, as you know, have sonar. Do you know how wind – and they don't run into the blades like birds do. Do you know how they kill the bats? Air pressure changes by the blades explodes their lungs. The point is, is that not only have we heard that fossil fuels are clean, but so-called clean energy sources have their own environmental defects. And I'm, I'm still waiting for a coherent definition from clean for you that doesn't conveniently uh, 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 feed into whatever it is you guys like. Cassia Yanisek. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of frogs, but not of bats. So I'm not actually going to take that argument on. Um, what about birds? How do you feel about birds? Uh, again, I'm a frog person, so I'm just going <laughs> to stick with frogs. I'm a bird person. Um, <laughs> 
But I want to go back to this, you know, definition of clean energy and the cost issue. I think we've made some very good points tonight about how the costs are coming down the curve. And we need to be spending our time and money and efforts right now building an innovation economy. Because not only do we need to do that domestically, but we need, a, where, we need an investment strategy for how we're going to be building our export economy. Cassie, where are the jobs in what you're talking about? The jobs are all over the place. They're everywhere from um, investment houses, research, research firms. Um, there are engineering jobs. So I used to work at Bechtel and BP. You know what Bechtel and BP's biggest problem is? It's about getting young people into, that biz- into their businesses because people don't want to be uh, drilling engineers. They want to be solar entrepreneurs and, and energy um, engineers. So well, we need to change their mind. Well, <laughs> Stephen Hayward, uh, jobs and... Yeah, uh, you know, I would testified on the uh, green exports idea to a congressional committee a few months ago, and I looked up the latest figures. We currently have a $20 billion trade deficit in green energy components. That's, you know, wind and solar and things of that kind because – and that's why uh, uh, the company in Massachusetts moved to China. Uh, uh, and so, uh, I, you know, I agree to some extent that uh, we will do a lot of innovating here, uh, but the manufacturing is going to be done overseas, folks, for all the traditional reasons. Sorry about that. Well, that's not true about wind. It's not true at all about wind. I mean, we've got Vestas wind turbines. That's 2,600 jobs. You can't make smaller 2,600 jobs in a state like Colorado. It's 5 million people and a variety of other parts of the wind manufacturing sector. But even as it relates to solar, I wonder if there's a debate in China tonight where they're saying, you know, SunTech moved to Arizona, and they're making things in Arizona. And so this is a bad thing for us to do in China, to invest in an innovation economy. They're not doing that. I want to go to the audience for some questions now. And a uh, gentleman in a blue shirt and a blue blazer. So on the subject of costs, can both panels uh, give us an outlook, their outlook for the price of oil, let's say going out five, seven, ten years, because that seems to be you know, key to the proposition. Let's let Cassia, yes, yes, I take that. I'll answer in two parts. Number one, uh, the spike issue. I think that we're uh, vulnerable to price spikes in any environment over the next five to seven years. Currently, we're experiencing a price spike we could see that again in two years. We could see that in five years. We could see that in another month. One other point I would make, and this is actually b- based on my experience at BP, which is that you know we're not going to see oil at 10 or $20 a barrel anymore. And part of that is because the above-ground and below-ground risks have changed for the, for the oil industry. So number one, we have to drill, drill further and in um, more difficult places to get the oil out of the ground. Clearly, we've seen that in the Gulf of Mexico. And then, fine, and then secondly, the above-ground risks. So most of the oil um, in the future is going to be developed in non-OECD countries, and we're already seeing that happen. So what does that mean? It means that the national oil companies have more control over over their resources, and that is certainly raising the the cost of uh, getting a barrel of oil out of the ground for the IOCs, for the independent oil companies. Okay, let me put that that to the other side, Stephen Hayward. Yeah, uh, this is an interesting question, and I'm almost reluctant to take it on because it's going to help out the other side slightly, perhaps, if they have the wit to pick up on it. Um, look, you know, we actually already got off oil once. Uh, in the late 1970s, oil was the number two source of electricity generation in this country, and now it's less than 1%. Uh, and the interesting thing is, is that uh, in, the, you know, in the first oil shocks in the 70s, about half of our energy, total energy consumption was from oil. Today, it's now about 35%. We've gradually electrified more. I'll just say about the first part of the question. Predicting oil prices out five years has made fools out of more people than I've been able to keep count of, and so I don't do it anymore. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. Stay with us. This is a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. Our motion is, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. All right, let's go to some questions now. Hi. Um, yeah, Mr. Hayward, we're, we're in New York City at NYU University. As, as you walk around the city, look up at the, at the chimneys and you'll see the black smoke coming out. Well, here at, at NYU, the New York, the Institute of Policy Integrity teaches us that 1% of the buildings in New York City burning bunker fuel produce as much pollution as all of the cars and trucks in the city. There, 259 people die every year because of respiratory diseases, one, over $1 billion a year in health costs. It seems to me that replacing the bunker fuel with natural gas 
would make it vastly cleaner, would give us lots of jobs, would return almost $2 billion to our economy on a yearly basis. That would help our economic recovery. Stephen Hayward. Um, now, the odd thing to me is that it's still allowed to be, you know, be burned uh, in New York City or any urban area. Uh, uh, look, I won't quarrel with your figures. Uh, the EPA's got a, a thing out last week about conventional energy. Uh, I'm not sure that it nets out to saying that this is going to be an engine that's going to drive our economy the way housing has done in previous sectors, the way high technology has done. And that's the promise of the resolution tonight. See, this is going to lead us to a boom, right? And I'm just saying that uh, it seems to me it looks like any other sector that will produce only modest results. Sir, what do you think of that answer? Do you feel your question was addressed? To me, it sounded like you just, just avoided it. If, if, you're, if we put $2 no, billion... No, I said I don't, know why, I don't know why it's allowed to have bunker fuel being burned here at all. That really astounds me. It would have been shut down in L.A. 30 years ago. Well, I think there are a lot of people who would say, we don't understand why it's allowed to burn oil anywhere, why it's allowed to burn coal anywhere. We have much cleaner alternatives. Converting to those alternatives, in many cases, will be cheaper. And this New York example is a very specific Robert Bryce, example, is that true? which is vastly cheaper. Robert Bryce. Well, fair enough. But did you arrive here by car tonight? No, of course not. I live in New York City. I took a subway. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have cars in New York City. I, I, I came here in a car, and it burned that dirty, nasty oil. And so I'm, I don't know, right. I'm kind of biased toward it, don't I guess. I live in a city where it's Thank clean. You. Let's go over to this side. Um, all right, let me go back to the audience. Where should America see the rest of the world in this? Like, should we see them as enemies? Should we see them as friends, business partners? Should we see their governments as business partners? I mean, where does the rest of the world play into America's economic recovery in terms of clean energy? Cassia Janicek. I think we see them as all of the above. I certainly would say that when, when I think about where I want to be putting my dollars to work, I think about where are my export markets, where are my customers I mentioned a, a statistic earlier tonight that 90% of the, the real energy growth that's going to be happening over the next two decades is in non-OECD countries, developing countries. So we have to be partnering. We have to be developing our customer base. We have to be developing uh, the appropriate trade policies. We're going to have to have some, not all, certainly for, for the large CapEx projects where it makes sense to have local industry develop those products like wind. Um, that needs to be domestic. But for certainly for a lot of other products, we will need to partner with, place, with uh, countries like China. Um, Robert I, just, just quickly, in terms of one of the issues in terms – your question is a complicated one. I think we're partners, we're competitors. It depends. But one of the best pieces of news that I've read was that in West Bengal, in India, ONGC, the Indian energy giant, announced the first shale gas production from a shale gas well in West Bengal. We're seeing now shale gas production potential in Poland, in Australia, in China. The potential for natural gas to set a new paradigm globally for a low-carbon, clean-burning energy source that is cheap, ultra-abundant, uh, uh, and reliable to produce electricity to use for transportation is incredibly good news. What, what, how, where did it come from? It came from the United States. So are you agreeing with the other side on this point? <laughs> with regard to innovation in... Yes, look, innovation is... Innovation is innovation. Is innovation. Okay, ma'am, in the blue... This evening, no one's really addressed the fact that we have a very aging electric generation infrastructure and that 50% of our generation today, approximately, is produced by coal. Most, many of those plants are very old, and even the younger plants that are maybe 20 years old have been grossly under-invested in. Clean energy and investment in things like fuel cell technology are critical to figuring out how the investment, for example, in our coal plants needs to be made. Okay. It's an investment opportunity that our economy, quite frankly, cannot afford to miss. Let me so just take a quick cut at it. If you look at any of the projections, Deutsche Bank did a report on this in, in December, the Energy Information Administration, the vast majority of new uh, electric generation capacity in the United States will be, over the next 20 years, natural gas-fired. And I'm fully in favor of fuel cells. They're still far too expensive to be commercially viable throughout most of the U.S., unless you're in California where you get big subsidies. What are they going to run on? Natural gas. 
Uh, I work with utilities quite a bit, and those that actually have that are very exposed with their coal fleets, they are very concerned and very interested in figuring out energy again. You know, the future of energy innovation and how they can strategize the future portfolio over the next five, ten, twenty years. And yes, natural gas is definitely going to be part of that solution. You know, we've had experiences where we've had a big buildup in natural gas fire power generation, and guess what? The net price of natural gas spiked ten. $13 a megawatt, uh, a kilowatt hour. So guess what? We need to be thinking a bit broadly about how we're going to be developing our future generation fleet because you're absolutely right. We've got a big challenge ahead of us, and we need to be thinking very broadly about a, a big Right, but I, I don't think your side disagrees with what you just said. No, I th- no. Look, we're moving more toward natural gas, not just in the U.S., but globally. Why? Because we're decarbonizing the global economy. It will include solar panels. It'll include fuel cells. It'll include a lot of things. But we're moving toward cleaner fuels. Why? Because it's what we want as consumers. Okay. So that sounds like that could drive economic recovery in America to do that. I mean, <laughs> that's probably... It will because natural gas is cheap. No, natural gas is only one part of it, though. And that's, that's, we're getting, and I agree it is a part of it. We actually are promoting the use of natural gas. But to focus it solely on that fossil fuel, it's still a high. Okay, well, let me just ask one question then, uh, Governor. So you're pro-natural gas. I am too. So a lot of our natural gas is produced alongside oil. So you're bringing oil and gas out of the same well bore. So the natural gas is clean, but the oil is dirty. I didn't, I didn't say that oil was dirty. What I said is we have a supply of natural gas. It is cleaner burning. We have the technology. And government sponsored the natural gas turbine to get to a place where it became more efficient. But, but the fact of the matter is that natural gas or oil should not be the only part of our portfolio. If we really look at this from an emissions perspective, you get a 50% reduction in emissions at best from uh, natural gas when you translate it from, or transfer it from coal. But with a portfolio that includes all these other things, we can get to this 80% reduction by 2050. We can't get through there, there from a natural gas only 80% strategy. reduction by 2050? It won't, it won't no. happen. No, no way. Uh, Not look, a chance. Uh, I can't Hayward. believe that nobody ever seems to do the math on this, except, by the way, for some researchers at the University of Colorado in the governor's home state. Um, that 80% reduction takes us back to, as I mentioned earlier, about a billion tons of CO2. The last time we emitted a billion tons of CO2 from fossil fuel sources in this country was over 100 years ago when we only had 92 million people living in the country. Quick point, John. If to, to hit that 80% reduction by 2050 would take uh, U.S. CO2 emissions to current level of emissions in North Korea, Syria, or Cuba. What is the solution? And, and I say it clearly has to be natural gas and nuclear. We, and nuclear in particular because of the power density numbers. It were I the king, if I were the energy czar, I'd say let's go nuclear in a big way because of the obvious benefits. And I think that the people who are, in my view, if you're anti-carbon dioxide and anti-nuclear, you're pro-blackout. Bill, can I just... Can no, I, uh, let me bring in Cassia... Let me bring in Cassia Yanisek, and then I'll come back to you, Stephen. Well, can I have one... one no, no, one, one, one moment. Okay. Cassia, and then I will come back to you. I actually agree with our opponents here. We, you know, I do think nuclear natural gas is part of the solution. What we haven't spoken about tonight is actually the importance of having efficient, long-term, transparent government policies to get us there. So if we are going to have an economic recovery that's going to be fueled by clean energy, we've got to have the appropriate government policies in place to get us there in the most efficient and the cheapest manner. Question down in the front row. I think Cassia just hit the core of this resolution and the difference between the two sides, perhaps. A government policy, which to me is code for subsidies, which were only obliquely discussed earlier. So can we return to that subject? And if indeed clean energy by any definition is technologically achievable, economically achievable, what kind of government policy is necessary slash subsidy and why can it not be left to the market? I take the questioner's point is, is, is directly on point here. I'm, I'm, I'm all for renewables, but why can't they exist on their own? Why can't they? Why do they need my tax dollars? Why do they need everyone else's well, tax dollars cap, to make I mean, it happen? Our, our why does the oil and gas industry need subsidies? Okay, so would you agree then? Fairfield eliminate all subsidies. Fairfield no favor. This is a very important question. I think that you know. What we haven't seen enough of in this country is enough policies that actually pull technologies into the marketplace. We've seen a lot of push. But I absolutely think that the pool of technologies um, is the most important thing that we need to be focusing on. 
Uh, that could be through a carbon price, a tax, or a, you know, just some sort of price on carbon. I think the clean energy standard, and a, certainly a federal one, is a, certainly a good way to go, rather than the patchwork of state policies that make investors, I think, very you know, concerned because we don't, we'd like to see a big federal approach so that we have an easier time in putting our money to work. Um, but here's the problem with the idea of the price on carbon. Um, you know, Europe has had a big price on carbon for a long time. They've had high fuel taxes for decades, as a, strictly as a revenue measure, and later it became an environmental measure. Uh, you know, so their equivalent price of gas is as high as $8 a gallon uh, in uh, some countries, and their utility rates are much higher than ours. And yet, even with those high prices, you don't see any breakthrough green, clean energy technologies in Europe. Their numbers are about the same as ours. If the price on carbon incented the market, you'd see a lot more going on in Europe than we do. And that concludes round two of our debate. And here's where we are. We're about to hear brief closing statements from each debater. They will be two minutes each. And this is their last chance to change your minds. Remember, you voted before the debate, and we're going to ask you to vote once again right after their closing statements. And the team that has changed the most of your minds will be declared our winner. Clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. Here to summarize his position against the motion, Stephen, Hay- Stephen Hayward, F.K. Weyerhaeuser Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of The Almanac for Environmental Trends. Remember that the motion tonight is directed not at whether we think clean energy, however defined, is a good thing or a necessary thing, but whether clean energy can be the sector that will lead this country out of what we're still calling the Great Recession. If you mandate or subsidize something, of course you'll create jobs. And if the government spends lots of money on something, you will create jobs. But of course, if we thought just the government spending money on things uh, was the answer to prosperity, we would never cut the defense budget after a war. It's the reason we build prisons, because it's necessary. But no one thinks that that is the path to prosperity, even though it creates jobs. The question, does it create net new jobs across the economy? Does it add value where value doesn't currently exist? Uh, I cannot think ever of of a sector of the economy... Uh, that led us out of a recession because the government mandated that we buy the product. Uh, And I could spend a lot of time talking about uh, some of the important uh, things that have been pointed to, like the Internet, jet turbine engines, which were the result of government research, but not mandates that the public buy them. I think for all of these reasons, uh, the sign behind us says, think twice. I think you should think twice about, uh, about letting sentimental slogans do our thinking for us rather than the hard-headed reality of the energy world. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen Hayward. Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. And here to summarize for the motion, Kasia Janosek, founding principal of TANA Energy Capital and co-founder of the U.S. Partnership for Renewable Energy Finance. I'm not an environmentalist. I don't like bats and birds. I like making money. And I wouldn't be here talking about the importance of clean energy if I didn't think that there was an opportunity for investors and consumers to actually improve our, our, our state by either making money or reducing our costs of consuming energy. We've talked in, uh, about the, and we've been in agreement that we're seeing costs come down the cost curve for, for many clean energy technologies, whether it be electric uh, batteries or solar energy. And we've also agreed here that, you know, oil price spikes aren't great. And therefore, we need to be expanding our energy uh, options into a variety of different fuels, clean and dirty, and make them cleaner. So I would just finalize here my points by saying, I think that we need to be focusing on what's actually going to be getting us into this next phase of growing our economy. And we're already doing that. We're already seeing energy technology move to a place where we saw IT and biotech 10, 20, 30 years ago. And finally, it's about policies that actually bring finance into, the, into, uh, into this industry. Thank you. Our motion is clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Robert Bryce, author of Power Hungry, The Myths of Green Energy and the Real Fuels of the Future. Energy transitions, like it or not, happen over decades or even centuries, not years. In an economic recovery, the implied timeline here is maybe a half decade. In 1974, Richard Nixon promised that we would be energy independent in six years. Today, we import a lot of foreign oil. We've been an an importer of foreign oil since 1908, a net crude oil importer since 1908. Now we hear President Obama saying 80% of our electricity will be clean energy by the year 2035. We didn't get energy independence, 
and we won't meet this goal of 80% of our electricity from clean energy by 2035 either because it is such a nebulous idea. Look at the latest numbers from the EIA. Today we produce about 50% of our electricity from coal. Their latest projections are that by 2035 coal will still be providing about 40% of our electricity. Why? Because of cost. Clean energy won't fuel America's economic recovery because we don't know exactly what it means. Rather than having real discussions about energy and energy policy, we're stuck with yet another slogan, and that will not help our economic recovery at all. Thank you, Robert Bryce. The motion, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery. And here to summarize his position for the motion, Bill Ritter, director of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University and former governor of Colorado. This is uh, a uh, debate that's far more important than any kind of political slogan or any kind of politicking. This is a debate that I think has everything to do with the economic future of this state or this country and, quite frankly, the future for our kids and our grandkids. And people who think that Americans don't care what kind of a power source delivers electricity through a light bulb are wrong about that. Everything that I've seen in terms of public opinion polling says that Americans absolutely do care that we make investments in clean energy. They care about it because they believe that in this place, America, that we are inventors, that we are creators. And and quite frankly, um, Americans believe in this power of innovation and creation, and so they say, yeah, we can do it. We can do it with the right set of policies. And and we're not here defending every subsidy and saying it has to happen this way in a subsidized way. What we're saying is if you put the right set of policies in place that support financing, uh, technology, and those things that help bring technologies forward, then you get to a place where actually you can you can see uh, a vision for a clean energy economy that actually can be part of this economic recovery because it's a global market Thank you, Bill and a global demand. Thank, Thank you. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side has argued best. Here is the final result then from all of you in the hall who have voted twice now on the, debate, on, on the topic and the motion and the arguments that you have heard. Before the debate, 46% were for the motion, 21% against, and 33% undecided. After the debate, 43% are for, that's down 3%, 47% are against, that's up 26%, and 10% remain undecided. The team arguing against the motion, clean energy can drive America's economic recovery, has carried the debate. Our congratulations to them, and thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented by the Rosencrantz Foundation, was held at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Become a fan of Intelligence Squared U.S. on Facebook. Sign up and receive 15% off tickets to our live events. Just go to www.facebook.com forward slash think2twice. You can also follow us on Twitter at IQ2US. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.